Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Last Call begins in New York City on Dylan Thomas's final tour in 1953, a, a tour that was meant to save him from ruin. The Welsh poet's reputation for heavy drinking and philandering would soon be forgotten as eager audiences were captivated by his poetry lectures. That is the basic premise of this wonderful new film uh, about Dylan Thomas, about the people in his life and about the struggles and his amazing capacity for observing the human condition. The film again is called Last Call and we're joined today by the director of the film as well as the writer and producer, Stephen Bernstein. Stephen, welcome to Film School Radio. Thanks very much, great pleasure to be with you, Michael. Uh, where did the, where'd you come across this as an idea for a, for a feature film? Uh, what, what, how did it sort of come about? Because it's obviously very well known poet, uh, is one of those poets that is in that sort of pantheon of people you would name if you could come up with names of poets, he would be on that list. Uh, how did this come about? Well, he was always big in my life. Uh, you know, I, I, like so many of us, um, I lived a, a life of, uh, uh, an early life of, of self-indulgence and self-destruction um, and uh, couldn't, I think later, subsequently quite fathom why I had been that way. Um, and as I read Dylan Thomas, I saw parts of my own self in him, as I think others do, in that he was both brilliantly insightful into what you rightfully refer to as the, as the human condition or the human tragedy or the human comedy, um, but at the same time um, was self-destructive. He was drinking heavily. Um, he was a womanizer. He destroyed all his principal uh, relationships and died at only 38. So um, there's a romanticism uh, to that, I think a misplaced romanticism, but I think it goes to uh, all of our collective uh, natures, sort of love of life and the love of death, um, the love of danger. Um, so for me, uh, it was something that resonated with my own um, experience. And then I began to examine it. And it was a script that really began some 30 years ago um, as just some essays, and then that evolved into a theater play, and then ultimately um, into a, into a film. What's your first step? You do, doing kind of the research on Dylan Thomas? Was it how did they, sort of that evolve from an idea into the? It's script? interesting. It also, goes to, it also goes to my writing process, and that I, I, I tried to um, have as few um, inhibitions or limits to um, the intuitive expression of ideas as I can. So for example, I won't write, I'll dictate, um, and then I'll use voice recognition to get it down onto a page. I also never write to structure. So any idea of a three act, uh, I completely eliminate. I'll write long dialogue scenes that run for 20 pages just to discover the character. I write so I know what I think rather than knowing what I think first and then simply trying to get it down on the paper. Writing is a process of, of uh, discovery for me. And I feel the same way about research, particularly uh, historical figures. I'm writing a lot of scripts at the moment. I've had some good fortune in getting lots of commissions, and so many of them about actual historical figures. The worst thing you can do when you're writing about real people is know about them, because then you feel a strange moral obligation, which shouldn't be a creative obligation, to tell their true story. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a, a more profound truth 
um, that sometimes underlies the ostensible events of a person's life. More of the so, essence of a more of the essence of a person. Exactly right. So to get to essence, you have to get away from the specific. Okay. So I tried to uh, think about Dylan as little as I could, but thought about what he represented and what it might be like to be a person um, who is drinking heavily, remembering their past the more they drink, thinking of uh, of what they wished the world was, and then experiencing the world as it becomes more and more uncertain as you become more drunk. So um, that's how I wrote it. I wrote it um, in a passion. I wrote the first draft in four days. Um, I wrote it without any historical reference for research. Um, I wrote it in free verse, very often being alliterative or poetical, and then went back and rewrote and rewrote and rewrote. Now, how closely does the story hew to, was there an actual final tour? Is this sort of, how, how closely does it hew to the, the history of Dylan Thomas in America? Well, you know, again, um, the key thing is, it's not a biopic. It's about the, as you rightly said, a great internal expression, which I'll borrow and, and not credit, but uh, it is getting to the, the essence of the man. But yes, he did really go on these tours of America. He really was constantly um, running out of money. Um, he really was uh, a little bit irresponsible. Um, he really was uh, uh, womanizing, as I said, and he really did go to the White Horse Tavern and had 18 double scotches in quick succession and then went to the Chelsea Hotel, which is nearby, wandered into the lobby and said, and I can't do a proper Welsh accent, but he said, I just had 18 double scotches. I think that's some sort of record. Uh, fell on the floor, went into a coma, and three days later died. Oh my God. So quite, a, quite an exit and quite a life. For people who are only familiar with the name Dylan Thomas, how would you characterize his writing, his poetry? You know, the reason I think Dylan Thomas is so important is he goes back to an ancient form of poetry, I think it was called Kenning, which goes right to the very beginning of, of, uh, of English literature. And it goes to the inadequacy of language. Um, when the language was first being used, they didn't have all the adjectives and adverbs and so on that we now have. So when they wanted to describe something like water, they would call it the whale way because that's where whales went. Um, and it's a remarkable way then of describing ideas without using common language because the problem with common language is it becomes compromised. Yeah. Um, the argo that we share in our culture has been um, co-opted and used in advertising and ultimately it loses most of its meaning. So when you reinvent language by using a new ways, inventing words or phrases or reference to describe a thing without saying the thing's name, it can acquire a meaning specific to the poem. And that's a very good uh, understanding for filmmakers to have as well, because it's not till we change the form of filmmaking that people see our films freshly. But certainly in writing, when you write in a different way, when you use um, language um, in, that's unique and new to an audience, then it's fresh to them. And that's what's remarkable about Dylan Thomas he causes us to see the world with new eyes because he uses language in a new way. Yeah, that's interesting because in a way, and I hope I'm gonna say this correctly, but it's almost as if you, you sort of reverse engineer the language. We know the adverbs in the adjectives, but when you sort of reverse engineer it back to the, the ancient way of speaking, we have a frame of reference, which helps in, inform what he, what he was saying in his, in his work. 
Is that exactly? And then you can use things like you know paradox and and intentional contrast. So, um, you know, at one point he says, uh, you know, the definition of love is something that makes you unhappy. Now, the minute you say that, you suddenly now you're redefining love because when we say love, we all have some sort of shared understanding. But he constantly takes our shared understanding and alters it so we see it in a new way. And isn't that the function of art? Isn't that the function of all of us is to alter the world so that we see it as it may actually be rather than we typically experience or we agree to see it in a certain way. When we stop agreeing, then we see it freshly. Yeah. I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with the director of a new narrative film called Last Call, Stephen Bernstein. And he is also the producer, director, and writer as well. Let's talk about an amazing cast that you were able to bring into this work. Really remarkable. Well, let's start with Reese Evans, uh, who plays Dylan Thomas. Uh, what? How did he come into the project? Well, it's remarkable in that I put together a list, as every writer does, of, of the cast that I wanted. Knowing that the way it usually works is uh, casting is a process of breaking your own heart and that you ultimately never get the actors you want. Remarkably, I got every single one of them. It was Reese is a, is a great actor, known in America mainly as a comedian, but he's a classically trained actor. In the UK, uh, we know him for his theater work. He's a BAFTA award winner, hugely uh, gifted with a vast range. And he's Welsh, as Dylan Thomas was. And you really have to be Welsh to get the lilting, lyrical, musical quality of uh, the language, the way the Welsh uh, use it when it's being used uh, in the best way. And I knew that uh, Reese was, was capable of that. And I approached him thinking he would surely turn me down. Fortunately, the scripts um, for whatever uh, magic that occurs in this world from time to time was very well received. And Reese's people read it and loved it, passed it to him. He loved it, full of trepidation about playing this uh, Welsh national hero. Uh, but I flew to London to meet him. We had a very long, I think five, six, seven hour conversation. Um, and he thought about it a few days and came back and agreed to do it. Uh, Malkovich uh, read the script and got incredibly enthusiastic. Um, uh, and I don't want to misquote John, but I believe he said it was the best script he had read in 10 years, um, uh, which is high praise indeed. I flew to meet him um, at one of his homes in America. Um, we had lunch together. Again, another long conversation, agreed it on, on the spot. Romola, I knew from a series in Britain called The Hour, which I thought she was iridescent and fantastic actress, she agreed. And Tony Hale, I just always sense had a substance to him, despite the fact he was playing comedy and he knocked it out of the park. And Rodrigo Santoro, um, uh, I, for reasons that I could go into if we had more time, um, was somebody I always wanted, but again, I thought was beyond my reach. And it's a great thing that a lot of young writers and directors should know is that actors care about acting. It's not just about money. It's just not about waiting for the studio call. If they get a script that they like and respond to, they'll come and do your film. We had a very small budget and we got this incredible cast on a very small budget film. Yeah. It's been my observation over the years of, do, of having interviewed a lot of independent film directors, you know, first time, second time feature narrative film directors. And they have a remarkable, either one or two remarkable actors, well-known actors in these in these films, is that those films, films like Last Call, 
gives an actor an opportunity to really exercise their craft in a way. And also, generally speaking, directors that do these kinds of films are willing to allow an actor to spread their wings, allows them to take to a, to a degree that they may not have in, in, a, in a franchise film in a, in, in, or in a bigger budget studio film. There's so many eyes on those projects, right? Is that, a, is that fair? I think that's absolutely right. Um, and also, uh, I should say, I, have a, I come from theater, um, so I have a very specific methodology about how to work with actors. And I explain to them when we have our first meeting, look, um, the sets are gonna be sacrosanct. Um, we clear um, the set of all crew when we're prepping. I don't believe in rehearsals. Um, we approach the material freshly so that when we're doing it on the day, we haven't heard the words a hundred times. Um, I'm very interested in improvisation. I will write improvisational scenes that precede the scenes we're actually gonna shoot and that follow them. And I'll have the actors do those improvisational scenes so they can build up the energy um, and the relationships prior to the scene we're actually gonna do. I tell them if they stumble or make a mistake, I encourage that to just keep going. And if a word seems inorganic to them, to alter it. So as another one of the actors described to me, it's like the dream um, set for an actor because as you rightly say, they can spread their wings. They can do uh, what they think um, you know, best serves the performance. And then, you know, I rush in and I give notes. Um, I'm always right next to the camera. I'm never far away. I understand, I think, um, uh, what actors want. I always make sure before I do a film that I go on several acting classes to remind myself of what it's like to be the actor, um, to, to understand, um, how dangerous it is to be out there on that limb so that I can fully empathize with them and be with them on that journey. We're speaking with Stephen Bernstein. He's the director, producer, and writer of Last Call. Last Call comes out on November 25th, so be looking for this. It's a great film to take in around the Thanksgiving holidays because it is a very compelling story. I'm going to ask you to kind of put on an, another hat as far I mean, as director, but you have a your history Stephen, is as a cinematographer. And I have learned over the years another lesson about filmmaking, and that is that the relationship between a director and a cinematographer has to be almost telepathic. And um, I'm going to ask you to talk about Antal Steinbach, talk about that relationship as a cinematographer, but also as a director. Look, I, I, what's fundamental to my understanding of film uh, that people often don't recognize, sadly, when they begin making films, is that it's all about language. Uh, we encode ideas. We have an idea, we have a way of encoding it, and then reaching an audience with it. The, the signifier is the idea, the signified is, is how we express it, and the audience uh, receives it. Now, we can encode those ideas in a variety of ways. We can do it with language. I'm speaking to you now in the English language, which is just a code, agreed upon code, that you know I notionally present ideas, you notionally understand them, and we uh, communicate. But cinematography is a language. If I do an asymmetrical composition, it suggests an idea to the audience. It's subtle, it's visceral, but it's there. If I push the camera in, it suggests an idea to an audience. It's subtle, it's visceral, uh, but it's there. If I use a red wash of light, it implies ideas to an audience. So the minute I came to an understanding of cinematography as a language, and I've always been a writer since the time I was a boy and was first being trained in, in the UK, my first job was as, as a writer for the theater, I began to recognize the similarities. Cinematography is a language, 
Um, words are a language. We use them in different ways, but in film, we use them in concert with each other. So I feel my job as a director is to provide the broad strokes for my creative collaborators. And I will write these vision documents before I begin a film, which run hundreds of pages and say, look, this is what I want the audience to feel. These are the intellectual ideas they are examining. These are our narrative obligations. Now, how can each of you contribute to that vision? They'll come up with ideas. I'll listen. I'll be the ultimate arbiter. We'll agree together how we're going to work. And that's the way we arrive at the film, which is this um, amalgam of images, camera movements, color, music, costume, um, and of course the words and the performances themselves. So that's what I did with Atoll, who had been my gaffer on um, a TV series called Magic City, which um, earned me the American Society of Cinematography uh, award nomination um, for outstanding cinematography. And so we had collaborated successfully before. I knew him as a charming, charismatic individual and I knew that I could rely on him to understand what I liked in lighting. Um, and I flew him up to Montreal. We had a fantastic crew in Montreal. I talked to him at great length in the pre-production about what my vision was, and he contributed and contributed and contributed. And then this kind of magic happened of these um, searing of black and white um, images. And black and white is actually harder to shoot in in color because you can't get away with anything. Uh, but also uh, fantastic studies that were studied by Zettel years ago, discovered that black and white images are actually more emotively powerful than color images are. So when an audience sees an image in black and white, they're more emotionally engaged, which is one of the reasons that we shot that way. Watching the film, uh, you're, the, you're very judicious with your use of close-ups, the framing that you use in this is, Reminds me a lot of, and a lot of great directors came out of this era, Playhouse 90, uh, the kind of that era of the 50s when you were seeing the Lumets and the, all these different people really hone their craft, <coughs> excuse me, hone their craft. That's what this reminds me of. It reminds, there are other, there are exteriors, there are other things, but it reminds me of a Playhouse 90, a really well executed Playhouse 90. Is that uh, fair? Michael, I, I can't believe you got that because what we use as our visual reference was uh, the 1950s British and American theater plays that would appear on television. I wanted to make you feel that you're watching a three tube video camera circa 1957 and very few people have picked it up. I think nobody has. You're the first, you're exactly right. I, because I remember, I remember seeing Cyrano de Bergerac on a black and white um, television, shot in black and white on three tube camera and being overwhelmed emotionally uh, with my engagement and care for those characters. So I felt it worked then and I feel it works now. Well, it, it, I, we didn't even really get to the, the, the acting across the board. This is a fantastic cast. You mentioned John Malkovich, Tony Hale, uh, Rodrigo Santoro, uh, all these people are in it are fantastic. And I'm Stephen Bernstein, the film again is Last Call and it's out on November 25th. Be looking for this. And uh, I really appreciate your time today uh, joining us here on Film School Radio. What a delight speaking to you, Mike. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. 
Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. 